0: As we continue in our journey and throughout the book of Psalms, we're going to turn to a psalm this morning that is certainly not cheerful. In fact, it's rather bleak. Now, why would I choose a psalm that's bleak? Because my friends, there are many in this world who have no hope. They're looking at a world full of pain and sorrow, and they have no answers to that. We've come to worship God this morning. There may be some here today who are struggling with that sense of hope themselves. All of us, from time to time, come to a place very close to the brink of despair at some point in our lives. There is a powerful term to describe what we often feel when going through struggle and it feels like God is on the other side of the universe. That phrase is the dark night of the soul. It's not used much today. Uh, I have used it in some classes and beyond that. But in the Middle Ages, it was quite a common term usually among European mystics, and it's the translation of the title of a book by a Spanish monk by the name of John, John of the Cross, an artist's rendition here. So what is The Dark Night of the Soul? It's a time of intense struggle, a time of great spiritual anguish in which the struggling and despairing believer somehow feels as though he's been abandoned by God, that God himself has turned his face from him. It's a phrase that fits well in several different contexts of Scripture. It describes the heart of Job as he struggles to understand why he's lost his family, why he's lost his goods, why he's lost his health. It describes Elijah in the wilderness. After having defeated over 400 false prophets, he was then in the wilderness hiding because Jezebel wanted his life. And he cries out to God, I'm the only one. And he asks God, why don't you take me? It also describes what is known in theological circles as the cry of dereliction. You may not be familiar with that term, but you're familiar with the cry. It is our Lord Jesus Christ, when he hung on the cross, and the only time in his entire life he directly addressed God the Father with anything but Father. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And it's a term that fits The psalm well today. We'll be looking at a psalm that is categorized as an individual lament. This is not a lament that all of Israel shares. This is a brokenness of one man. Now, most psalms of lament end with a note of confidence, end with a note of praise. But not this one. Tremper Longman has said that Psalm 88 is one of the bleakest of all the prayers in the book of Psalms. I wanted to prepare your heart for that. But now if you would stand as we look at Psalm 88 and try to understand what it has to teach us today. The psalm is attributed to a man named Heman an Ezraite. Uh, He's noted and believed to be one of the, the people mentioned in the book of Kings. But hear what he had to say. O Lord, the God who saves me, day and night I cry out before you. May my prayer come before you. Turn your ear to my cry. For my soul is full of trouble and my life draws near the grave. I am counted Among those who go down to the pit, I am like a man without strength. I am set apart with the dead like the slain who lie in the grave, whom you remember no more, who are cut off from your care. You have put me in the lowest pit, in the darkest depths. Your wrath lies heavily upon me. You have overwhelmed me with all your waves." You have taken from me my closest friends and have made me repulsive to them. I am confined and cannot escape. My eyes are dim with grief. I called you, O Lord, every day. I spread out my hands to you. Do you show your wonders to the dead? Do those who are dead rise up and praise you? Is your love declared in the grave, your faithfulness in destruction? Are your wonders known in the place of darkness or your righteous deeds in the land of oblivion? But I cry to you for help, O Lord. In the morning, my prayer comes before you. Why, O Lord, do you reject me and hide your face from me? From my youth, I've been afflicted and close to death. I have suffered your terrors and am in despair. Your wrath has swept over me. Your tears have destroyed me. All day long they surround me like a flood. They have completely engulfed me. You have taken my companions and loved ones from me. The darkness is my closest friend. God bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. A painful psalm. And one we need to hear, particularly when we find ourselves in the state that the psalmist is in. When we come to that moment when darkness is your closest friend. You see, looking at this psalm, we find a man who cried out to God in despair. And it is a hard psalm to read. It's a hard psalm to hear. This is not on the top of anybody's devotional reading. But it challenges us see, I believe, like the psalmist, we must honestly face the time of pain in our lives. We can put a happy face on. We can use the religious words people expect us to use. We can say the praise of the Lord's hallelujah. But there comes a moment in time when we need to look at the pain. And we need to open our hearts and we need to understand So looking at this man and his situation, listening to his words, hopefully we can find understanding for the times we face the dark night of the soul. You see, my friends, when darkness is your closest friend, suffering seems hopeless in verses 3 through 4 and 11 through 15 he starts numbering everything that he's going through and when we look at this man and we hear what he has to say the psalmist seem to be facing a lifelong threatening illness this psalm is very very closely connected to the the book of job and its statements in fact one one author Suggested that maybe Heman wrote the book of Job, they are so alike. Job's complaint is similar to this man. But his affliction and his trouble came in his old age. Here the psalmist is saying his affliction has lasted throughout his life. And he now seems to say, and I know this is an anachronism, they didn't use this term, but he seems to have one foot in the grave. He is at the point of dying. He knows he doesn't have long if God doesn't do something to rectify this. And it's crucially important that we acknowledge something here. Throughout most of the Old Testament, there was not a lot of hope in life after death. Now, I know there are high water marks. David wrote in Psalm 23, I will dwell in the house of the Lord Forever. Job himself, the 19th chapter says, I know that my Redeemer lives and I will see him in my own flesh. But for the most part, death to the Old Testament saint was shield. At best, a shadowy kind of existence. There wasn't a lot of hope that there, after this life, there would be a place of bliss and glory and hope. The thing that changed, folks, is Christ and the resurrection. He gave hope. And he is our hope. If you want to have an idea of what I'm talking about, Sheol and the grave, in the book of Ecclesiastes, verses eight through fifteen chapter three, verses eighteen through twenty one. The writer says, I also thought as for men, God tests them so they may see that they are like the animals. Man's fate is like that of the animals. The same fate awaits them both. As one dies, so dies the other. All have the same breath. Man has no advantage over the animal. Everything is meaningless. All go to the same place. All come from the dust and to dust return. Who knows if the spirit of man rises upward and if the spirit of the animal goes down into the earth. Another bit from the wisdom literature of the Word of God. At the heading of this psalm is a phrase, a maskil. A maskil is believed to have been a teaching psalm, a teaching poem. So it's no surprise that this connects with some of the other wisdom literature. When the psalmist asked a series of questions in verses 11 and 12, He is reflecting the normal thought about death in ancient Israel. Do you show your wonders to the dead? Do those who are dead rise up and praise you? Is your love declared in the grave, your faithfulness in destruction? He's not being overly bleak. He says there's no help after death. I need you to move now, God. He is in pain. And when he asked those questions, his answer would have been no. Folks, we have to acknowledge healing does not always come. The reality is simple but hard to face. Emotionally, anyway, there is a 100% mortality rate for human beings. There will come a day... When this body quits working, and I will go to be with my God, we don't want to think about it. And even as we're preparing ourselves, loved ones who've had years of illness, when it finally comes, that moment of death, it's no easier to handle Eventually all will come to face to face with their own mortality. But when I say healing doesn't always come, I'm not limiting this to a physical healing. Because sometimes the pains that we face in life have nothing to do with physical illness. Sometimes they're just the pain because of all of the struggles that happen and we, we want them to end. And we pray and we seek God's face and we hope that they will end and Happily ever after doesn't often show itself in this world. The healing we long for may not come. And I said we need to honestly face that. We need to honestly deal with the struggles that we go through and the hurt and the pain. I need, to, I need to be willing to admit that pain can burden the faithful heart with doubt. Someone who has lived in a strong, close, intimate relationship with God can come to the place where they have begun to call everything into question. And the enemy of mankind comes and wants to bring that moment to despair. He wants to bring that moment of pain, that dark night when we feel like God is on the other side of the universe. The enemy would love nothing more than for us to simply cave in and give up. You see, part of the problem is our own hearts. The Book of Jeremiah declares that the heart of man is deceitful and will tell you lies. And there are times—probably everyone in this room who professes faith in Christ has had that moment of doubt. Do I really know him? Does he really love me? And the heart says, there's no point. But folks, I want you to understand, when darkness is your closest friend, God himself seems against you. This may be the hardest part of this psalm, Because the psalmist is looking at his life, and he's looking at the pain, and he's looking at all of the struggle, and he comes to a conclusion. The psalmist understood God to be the cause of all of his suffering. Now, he doesn't give an indication as to why he believes that or why God would cause him to suffer. He does talk about the wrath of God, but like Job, he is not willing to say, I have sinned and caused this myself. So he's saying, God, you're at the root of all my misery. And as you look at these verses, he says, God is the one who brought him near to death. You are the one, he says, who have put me in the lowest pit. God is the one who has filled his life with trouble. The overwhelming waves of God flushing over and causing pain and destruction. And then finally, knowing that friends can bring comfort. God has made his friends... To feel only revulsion toward him. At least Job's friends showed up for a little while. And for seven days just sat with him by the fire. Quiet. Loving him. And then they opened his ma- their mouths. And they were no longer comforters. They were tormentors. This man. No one's around him. And he says. God you have done this to me. And he says. I am praying. Every moment. Every morning, every moment, every time I can, I'm praying. I'm throwing myself before you, God. And in every prayer is a question Why? Why aren't you helping me? Why aren't you getting rid of this problem for me? You see, the dark night of the soul doesn't just normally pop into your life one day. To, The dark night of the soul comes creeping upon us often in times of struggle. John of the Cross described a moment in time when he was in oblivion, when he is in complete abandonment. James Montgomery Boyce has written, Most of us have times when the heavens seem made of brass and the prayers we throw upward fall back upon our heads unanswered. When that happens... It is no wonder that we feel dead or almost dead spiritually. If a man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God, it is no surprise that we feel nearly dead when God is silent. One of the most terrifying words in the Old Testament for me comes from the 8th chapter of the book of Amos. When Amos writes... There is a famine coming upon the land. But it's not a famine of bread and food. It is a famine of the word of God when God's people will not be able to find God's word because they have not really listened to begin with. God, I don't understand what's happening and 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 can quickly turn into God, why have you abandoned me? Looking at Job, again, we know from the beginning and the ending of Job's book that God had a purpose in Job's suffering. It was to demonstrate before Satan, the demons, and the watching angels that a man will serve God for love's sake quite apart from what God may do. But the, the key point of the book of Job is we know something he doesn't. We know the why of his suffering. And he asked God over and over, and when God shows up, he doesn't answer the question. He starts throwing off questions to Job. Where were you when? Where were you when? So Job never finds out what was going on. And neither does the psalmist. God does not explain himself here. Boyce pointed out that he believed that the book of Job and this psalm were in scripture because both works remind us that we do not necessarily know what God is accomplishing by our suffering either. I suspect there have been moments in your life when the pain was very powerful and you were just wanting to know why and then Perhaps over time the pain started to go away. You began to find release. And maybe to this day, years after, you still don't know exactly what God was doing. What the psalmist didn't understand, what Job didn't understand was that God was moving in their lives. Constantly moving in the lives of his people. But we just can't always see the how... Or the what of what he's doing. And so we struggle. And we have pain. And the idea that God might be against us. Sap us from strength. Without a clear understanding that God is with us. And the, the pain and the grief and the hurt. Has dimmed that truth. Without that. We find ourselves. At that brink of despair. Despair. Because if God really is against us, who can be for us? Who can ever help us? And that leads us to the next truth that we see here, the next reality of what we have to face. You see, when darkness is your closest friend, friends seem to abandon you. When darkness is your closest friend, even those who love you, Seem gone. Now, the psalmist is very clear here. He declared that friends, his friends, had turned from him. Like Job's friends, who are convinced that Job is suffering because of his sin, this man's friends have deserted him and are repulsed by him. And yes, God, he says, you're the one who caused it. But they look at him, and the only thing they can understand, you are suffering... Because somehow you failed, somehow you sinned. All throughout the book of Job, just repent, Job, just repent. He could have taken the easy way out, the popular way out and said, okay, I repent. But that wasn't the problem. Here, he is struggling and people who were close to him are no longer close to him. And folks, the idea that you are suffering because of your sin was a prominent thought within the Old Testament. They couldn't think of any other way, any other thing that would be true. If I'm suffering, somehow I have failed God. Somehow I have denied my faith. Somehow I have broken contact with God. And so his friends are saying... We're not going to have anything to do with you. Now, Job's friends are telling him, repent. But again, you and I know a secret, don't we? If you read the book of Job, you know that Job isn't suffering because of sin. But both men are hurting and can't find the comfort of someone who will love them. Sometimes in our pain, it feels like no one cares. I've talked about it before. Walk up to somebody and say, how are you doing? And we don't want them to say anything else but fine, right? This is a social nicety. How are you doing? Okay, pretty good day. Fine. We walk up to somebody and say, how are you doing? And they say, I just found out my mom died. All of a sudden, there is such... An awkwardness. An uncertainty. What do we do? What do I say? We start thinking of all the things that we ought to say. And, and we wind up, I'm sorry, and walk away. We need comfort. We need company. But often when people are confronted by others' people pain, they don't know what to say. They, they're afraid they might say the wrong thing. So they say Nothing. And the reality is, all that friend may need is what Job's friends gave him that first seven days. Silence, your love, and your presence. Not long after, Rachel was diagnosed with cancer. By the time we found out, she was already in stage four. An odd thing happened. Friends isolated her for a while. She had one really good friend who would come by the apartment and and stay with her and talk with her. And But friends that we had known for years, oh, oh when she was at church, they'd say hi. If we were out in the community, they'd say hello. But And I have seen this happen over and over again in, in people who are hurting. The tendency for people to pull away. And by the way, as a personal word, a thank you for all of you who were here with me during that last stage of Rachel's journey. Thank you for loving my wife as deeply as you did, even for no longer than you knew her. But folks, the reality is maybe it's not that People don't care. Maybe they just don't know what to say and do. But it doesn't matter if they're uncomfortable and afraid to address it, if they're uncomfortable and afraid to say anything because they might say the wrong thing. The reality is, in the time of pain, this man felt alone. He's accused God of turning the people away. But keep in mind, all of this is coming from his heart and from what he understands. And the only thing you he can understand is God... You have left me here on my own. Folks, when you're hurting, loneliness adds to the burden of struggles. We spent a good while in the book of Galatians, didn't we? A while back. And Paul expressly states to the Galatian churches, bear one another's burdens. Why is that within the Word of God? Because we can't always bear our burdens alone. We need someone who will walk alongside us, who will take us by the hand, who will love us, hug us, just say, I'm sorry with their hearts and their eyes, and I'm here. And when we forget to bear the burdens, the hurts of those around us, All we accomplish is causing more pain. Having said all that I have said, I now come to the crux of all of this. I've told you it's not not an easy psalm to hear. It's not an easy psalm to read, to study. But I need you to understand, my brothers, my sisters, my friends, these reactions to struggle do not have to be the final word. It may seem that we're hopeless. It may seem that God has abandoned us. It may seem friends don't love us, but that's not all we can learn from this man. Because folks, when darkness seems to be your closest friend, I want to tell you, hope is still possible. Hope is still possible as bleak, as this psalm is, with its refusal to end at the last, as Psalm 42 did, that we read together. Hope, I will yet praise him. Instead of ending there, it still ends with darkness, is my closest friend. But I'm telling you, there is hope in this psalm. I believe with everything in me, the psalmist did give a glimmer of hope in the midst of his pain. It's not a bright shining spotlight. Breaking all of the darkness around his heart. It's a glimmer. But I think something important happens here. In the first two verses. As he addresses God. He shows that hope. How can I say this confidently? How can I say. After everything else I've said. This man still had hope. Two things happen in this psalm. First of all, he called the Lord the God who saves me. The God who saves me. By doing this, he shows that he still had hope that the Lord himself, the God of his salvation, would come to his aid. He says, I know you have saved me in the past. And he's saying, I believe that you are still the God who saves me. You still give me hope in the midst of all of this. I'm not going to let go of that hope. The second thing that points to this hope he has, he never quit praying. He never quit. Folks, the reality is sometimes when we're in trouble and we're struggling and we pray and we don't get an immediate answer, we just quit. We give up, we give in to the despair. This man says, morning and night I am praying, I am seeking your face constantly. I'm not going to stop. I am going to keep on crying out to you, God. Because I do believe you are the God of salvation. You are the God who cares. I can't see that right now. But I'm not going to give up on you. Willem van Gimmeren said the very frequency and insistency of prayer marks the psalmist as a godly man who believes in the Lord's righteousness and fidelity to his own. He doesn't stop praying. There was a song back in the heyday of contemporary Christian music when it's getting up and moving and, and it had such a powerful impact on my life. Bread on the Water... And it says there are people who are never receiving anything from God at all, for they are shaken from their believing. When they don't see results, they quickly fall. And we can give up. But this man refuses to. And there's only one thing in my mind and heart that makes sense of this. He still has hope. He still believes that God will come through. He doesn't know when, he doesn't know how, but he's, I I get the impression he will be praying till the day he dies, trusting that God will move. When I look at this, it may not be a lot, but folks, it is hope. A hope that is built on the idea that God is a God who saves the covenant Lord of Israel, the God who loves his people. I'm here to tell you a conviction that God does care, can grant us strength when everything seems wrong. Elijah in the wilderness. He's prayed what I have referred to as the suicide prayer. Lord, just take me now. I am the only one who left. Who's left? And then there's a whirlwind and there's lightning and there's earthquake and all of this. And the, the writer of Genesis makes it clear the voice of God wasn't in it. And, but all of a sudden, he hears the still small voice of God who says, Elijah, you're not alone. There are many who have not turned their back on me. And the impression is, you're not alone. Look, I'm here. I'm talking to you right now. And Elijah had the strength to get up and leave the wilderness and then go and still do amazing things in the name of God. When Christ spends one of his loneliest moments of his life in the Garden of Gethsemane. Three different times he goes back to find the disciples sleeping when they, he asked them to be praying. And he even seems to understand the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. But he goes, and before his Father, Jesus Christ, prays this aching prayer. Father, if there is any way that we can accomplish salvation without this cup, I don't think Jesus was afraid of death per se. He did not want to face the crucifixion. He did not want the shame of dying a criminal. He did not want all of that. He says, if there's any other way, please let it pass. But in faith, he said, but what I want isn't important. Father, your will is. And even on the cross, when he cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He ends this prayer on the cross with a bold, It is finished! Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. For Jesus knew the Father was still welcoming him and loving him. Strength. And then there's God's promise for us. I hope you will hold on to this. If you underline in your Bibles, if you haven't done so by now, you need to. Romans 5.8. In those moments of despair, when there has been pain, when there has been hurt, and I have questioned the very love of God, I am reminded that God's word says, God demonstrates his own love for us in this while we were still sinners Christ died for us that assurance gives me the conviction that I need yes there have been things that have happened in my life I have no answer for I don't know the why There have been moments of sheer pain and hurt that I've never had the audible voice of God say, Danny, this is what I'm doing. But in those moments of time, when I begin to have that overwhelming sense, God, why aren't you helping me? I remember at my weakest, at my worst, at my moment of rebellion, shaking as it were my fist in the face of God, God said, Danny, I love you so much. I have sent my son to die for you. The realization of an eternal hope that is given God's people can grant the strength needed in dire times. God has given an eternal hope. I will never... leave you. I will never forsake you. I am with you always. And I have given my son so that you can have hope in life. I recently came across a hymn written by a German hymn writer, Wolfgang Christoph Dressler. I want to share the words of this to you. I will not let thee go. Thou help in time of need. Heap ill on ill, I trust thee still. Even when it seems that thou wouldst slay indeed. Do as thou wilt with me, I will yet cling to thee. Hide thou face yet, help in time of need. I will not let thee go. I will not let thee go. Should I forsake my bliss? No, Lord, thou art mine and I am thine. Thee will I hold when all things else I miss. Though dark and sad, the night joy cometh with thy light. O thou, my son, should I forsake my bliss? I will not let thee go. I will not let thee go, my God, my life, my Lord. Not death can tear me from his care, who for my sake his soul in death outpoured. Thou diedst for me, for love to me, I say in love to thee, even when my heart shall break, my God, my life, my Lord, I will not let thee go. You love me. And you have proved it to me. I may not understand what's happening, Lord, but give me the strength not to let you go. There's a story told of a certain monk in the Middle Ages who announced on the coming Sunday he was going to preach on the love of God. The shadows fell and the light ceased to come in through the windows of the building. And the congregation gathered wondering what he would have to say. In the darkness of the altar, the monk lighted a candle and carried it to the crucifix. First of all, he illuminated the the crown of thorns. Next, the two wounded hands. Then the marks of the spear wound. And in the hush that fell... He blew out the candle and left the chapel. The most amazing sermon about the love of God ever preached is on a Roman cross. And it's that love, that promise, that gives us hope. Yes, life can be Painful excruciatingly so. In the midst of struggle, when darkness overshadows your life, remember this. You are loved by the God of your salvation. So if you don't get results within 24 hours, keep praying. And if you see a brother or sister in pain, walk with them love them you don't need a theological education to just say I'm here and I love you keep crying out because eventually there will come a day the word of God tells us when God will walk with us and be our God and we will be with him in glory. And all of the tears and sorrows and pain of this world will be gone. Because all of those things will have passed away. Until that time, we will still have struggle. Some of the greatest people of faith this world have ever known have met horrible ends in martyrdom and pain. The writer of Hebrews 11 says they counted it worth it. So, today, as you struggle, and all of us in this room will struggle at some point, please recall, we may not know the how, we may not know the what, we may not know the when. But God's love will ultimately be made known. And we have reason to keep pressing on. Let's join ourselves together and stand that God's will will be done within our lives. The love of Christ will be known in this place and beyond as we learn to trust Even in the moment of struggle, God is on his throne. And we have cause to hope.